Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 78, Apocalypse Unsealed. Well, today I'm going to interview Kenneth Gentry. Uh, he's the author of uh, Before Jerusalem Fell, Navigating the Book of Revelation, and a whole host of other books on eschatology. He's a preterist like I am, and he's going to be talking to me today about how, uh, as preterists, we understand the Book of Revelation in contrast with the other views of Revelation. And we'll jump right into that in a few minutes, but I just wanted to do a couple of things. Uh, the first thing that I want to do is just let those of you who aren't on my The Apologetics Facebook page know that uh, here in a few days, uh, Tuesday morning in fact, uh, I'm going to be on, uh, well, I'm not going to be on the show, but I'm going to be recording uh, an episode of the Unbelievable program with Justin Brierley. I'm going to be joined by Steve Jeffrey, uh, pastor of Emmanuel Evangelical Church in London, and we're going to be discussing the nature of hell. So that should be uh, that should be a, a good one. Keep me in your prayers. It's going to be really early in the morning for me. It'll be 4 a.m. Um, since they're across the pond. So just pray that I would be awake and aware enough to make it a fruitful discussion, one in which the truth of God's word uh, is made clear, whether that's the position that I now hold or whether it's the position that Steve Jeffrey holds. Um, so that was the first thing that I wanted to mention. Uh, and, and I'll, of course, let everybody know as soon as I know when it is that the episode will be aired. Um, the other thing that I wanted to do was catch you guys up on some uh, iTunes reviews that I've got. You know, I don't pay very close attention to this because I haven't yet figured out how to stay on top of the reviews that I get. Um, you know, I've seen a couple on the iTunes page that I have available to me uh, on on the website, um, but I haven't been looking in iTunes itself. And when I did, I discovered several other reviews. But even there, I'm not sure that it represents the full list of them because different uh, people from different countries when they uh, post reviews they see uh, they're not available on the page I have and I have to go poking around in different countries to try to find them um, so I'm going to read a couple of these but if you want if you've left an iTunes review and you haven't heard it after today or if you do leave an iTunes review in the future would you please let me know about it and and I'll go ahead and read it on the air if if you're so inclined um <clears throat> You know, I'm not as big of a, 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 a solicitor of reviews as, say, D.D. Warren is, um, but it, it does touch me to see the, the reviews that I've, um, that I've read there. And by the way, you can leave reviews at the Zune Marketplace, too, for those of you, uh, a few freaks like me who uh, enjoy Windows uh, music players. In any case, uh, one of the reviews I got was from somebody named Roy Engel. He wrote, I have greatly enjoyed listening to this podcast. Chris does a good job of presenting various theological issues and allowing his listeners to discern for themselves what is correct. I enjoy his interviews with various theologians from various backgrounds. Well, thanks, Roy. I appreciate that. That, that is really my desire. It's not so much to teach you what's right, uh, because, gosh, I could be wrong on a number of things that I tell you. My desire is to get you thinking. Um, and to get you uh, to, to get you discerning um, the truth in a wide variety of matters that maybe you haven't thought about much before, or maybe you've held a position that maybe you realize now needs to be rethought. Um, I don't know, or, or maybe just teach you how to better defend your own position. Um, <clears throat> so I appreciate your comment. The next one is from Daniel Vickery. Uh, he wrote, and this is a little bit long, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. This is truly one of my favorite podcasts. It deals with meaty topics in a reasonable way, but does not do so in a way that feels shallow or too short to get into. Out of the roughly 20 podcasts I regularly listen to, this one is easily one of my top five. 
I also enjoy the suggested podcasts that are mentioned for additional edification. I have found several of them very useful for that very purpose, as well as very enjoyable as well. With this in mind, may I suggest adding one that is deep into the Reformed theology end, that being the Reformed Forum podcast. Though it does not break the topics down as Chris does, so it is not for everyone, and I figuratively swim through it as often as not, nevertheless I love the depth of it. My one complaint, however, for this podcast is if you disagree with a view being put forth, objections to it are softballed and agreed to far too easily for my liking. And I also dislike the Israelology shows, I guess that makes two complaints. But still, it is one of my favorite podcasts, and I thank you for putting such time and effort into it. I feel edified by them. Please keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Daniel. Um, <clears throat> a few things I want to say there. First of all, uh, I will check out the Reform Forum podcast, and if I, uh, if I enjoy it, if I think it's worth, um, worth you guys listening to, I'll go ahead and start promoting it. I appreciate you recommending that. And by the way, any other listeners, if you have shows you want to recommend that I include in my uh, promo rotation, please do let me know. Um, I've got a small list, but that I'd like to make larger. <laughs> I, I don't want all the listeners to myself. I want to spread them out there to other shows that I think uh, uh, are, are worth their salt, or worth their weight in gold, or I don't know, whatever analogy you want to use. Um, you know, as, as far as uh, objections to my positions, the ones that I'm, you know, presenting on the show being softballed. Um, you know, I apologize for that, Daniel. Uh, I, I try to do the best that I can. Obviously, when you agree with a position, it's a little bit easier to throw softballs than when you disagree with a position. Um, I don't think that I do any worse a job as, than anybody else, though. Now, you know, my listeners are welcome to correct me and, and uh, agree with what you said, but I actually think that I do a better job than most of challenging uh, my listeners' views, even when I do agree with them. But I could be wrong. That's just my opinion, and I, and I do appreciate your feedback, and I will be um, uh, trying to do better in the future. Um, as for the Israelology shows, you know, I know that many of you uh, who share my, a number of my positions are probably not dispensationalists when it comes to Israel, like I am. Um, not eschatology, but Israelology. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, I have my convictions. I think that there are good biblical reasons to hold them. Um, and, you know, if you don't like them, I understand. Uh, I hope that you'll listen, and I hope that it'll encourage you to think more deeply through the issue if you haven't already done so already. Um, and in the end of the day, if we disagree on uh, the identity of Israel, uh, well, then so be it. Um, but I, I, I'm sorry that you don't like them. And, you know, worst case scenario, I hope that you'll just skip them and listen to other episodes. Best case scenario, I hope that you'll listen to them and do some thinking through the issue. Uh, so that was Daniel Vickery. Uh, again, I appreciate your review. Uh, another one is from Jeffrey Borchert, I believe is how you pronounce the last name. He wrote, Chris is very honest about his own exploration of faith and how his views have changed because of it. I really identify with Chris as he takes the same approach I have and has reached some of the same conclusions I have through simply examining the Bible and letting go of the presuppositions or traditions that, he, that we were raised with. He's had some great interviews and not always with people who hold positions he agrees with. The interviews are always quite in-depth and though he is always respectful, Chris never hesitates to ask the most challenging questions he can. Well worth your time for anyone who truly embraces sola scriptura. Well, thanks, Jeffrey. That's absolutely right. I have obviously been exploring my faith as part of this podcast. I didn't know that that's what was going to happen when I started it, but uh, as obviously was the case with annihilationism, for example, um, that's definitely what's happened. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, at least some of you have enjoyed joining me along for the ride. Um, and also thank you for the, <laughs> the note that, uh, that I ask the most challenging questions he can. Uh, I appreciate that. So those are the reviews I wanted to read. Um, if, if there are any that I haven't read in past shows or this shows, let me know, um, and I'll read those on the air as well. I, I also happen to know that on average um, I've got a, 
four out of five stars, I believe. Apparently, ten people have rated my show uh, in terms of number of stars. And out of those ten, nine gave me um, a full five stars, which is awesome. One person gave two stars. Unfortunately, I don't know who that is, and they didn't leave a review explaining why. So, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully, as time goes on, I'll learn to be more challenging, hopefully more engaging, more enjoyable. Ho- hopefully, as, 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 as enjoyable as the podcast is, I hope, um, I'm hoping and I'm going to be striving for it to be better. So, I don't know, I guess that's all I've got as far as monologue. I know it's a little bit longer than usual, but this is going to be a little bit of a shorter interview. Kenneth Gentry doesn't have a lot of time, so I needed to make up for a little bit in my monologue. Uh, well, anyway, with that, let's go ahead and move into uh, today's promo. This is the show your pastor warned you about. Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and I'm so glad you joined me today. Looking forward to three hours of conversation, reflection, and uh, giving you a piece of my mind on the most important things that we can be thinking about. And yes, I think thinking is critical, even though feeling is part of it. I don't know if I've said this before on the air regarding Christianity. Pardon me. But uh, emotions are what makes life delicious. And uh, careful thinking is what makes life safe. Let me repeat that. I think it's important, and I've been using that phrase as well. Emotions are what make life delicious, but careful thinking is what makes life safe. That, that's what I hope to instill in, in you guys, my listeners, uh, and, and to develop myself is careful thinking. Um, I think that the Christian world is full of emotionalism, and so if you want a delicious life, I think you've already got it available. But I think that uh, as a church, we need to be more careful thinking. Uh, in any case, Stand a Reason with Greg Kokel is a great show. Greg and I don't agree on everything, uh, particularly some of my most recent views. I think he's probably not, not a fan of, but, uh, but I respect his show very much. I've learned a lot and have grown a lot as a result of listening to his show, and I would definitely recommend that you listen to it as well. You can listen to it live in, in California uh, every Sunday from 2 to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time uh, on 740 KBRT, and you can also listen online. I've got a link uh, in the show notes for you. Uh, and of course, it's also available in podcast form. The, the, the day after each episode is aired, uh, it's published in the podcast feed. So definitely check it out at www.str.org. That's Stand to Reason. STR.org. So with that, let's go ahead and move into today's interview with Kenneth Gentry. I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Kenneth Gentry, Jr., Executive Director of Good Birth Ministries, Director of NiceneCouncil.com, and Pastor of Living Hope Fellowship, a Reformed Presbyterian congregation in Greer, South Carolina. Dr. Gentry lectures widely, has published scores of articles, and has authored a number of books on the topic he joins me today to discuss, which is Preterism and the Book of Revelation. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Dr. Gentry. Good to be with you today. We're, lit- we're limited in time today, so I'm going to jump right into today's topic in just a second. But I- first, I want to let my listeners know about a project you're currently working on. Uh, one of your most recent books, if not the most recent one, is called Navigating the Book of Revelation. I've got it right here next to me, which sort of served as a source for my questions for you today. I, re- I really want to recommend the book to my listeners, but it really is just an outline or a-, or a glimpse into a much larger project that you're working on. Can you tell us about that? Yes, for several years, in fact, since 2005, I've been working... Uh, quite a deal of my time during the day, during the week, on a full commentary on the book of Revelation. 
In fact, it's an academic commentary, and it looks like um, currently the manuscript version is about 1,600 pages. So it's wow. going to be a, a large um, commentary. It may be more than one volume. depends on how small the print is. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been working on it very vigorously and look forward to completing it at the end of this year. Oh, great. I can't wait. I'll be sure to let my listeners know when it's available. Um, well, I want to begin by briefly discussing how preterism differs from the other major views of Revelation. I've introduced preterism to my listeners when it comes to the Olivet Discourse. Uh, we're talking about something different here. You discuss this at, great, uh, at greater length in Chapter 3 of Navigating the Book of Revelation, but could you sort of summarize how the other three views see this last book of the Bible and then tell us how we preterists understand it? All right, there are basically four views on approaching Revelation, or four schools of interpretation. One of them is the more popular version known as Futurism. The Futurists, represented by people like Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, and others of that thinking, uh, tend to look at the book of Revelation as given to John in the first century as a prophecy regarding end-time events, that is, events that will occur just prior to uh, the second, or actually the rapture of the church toward the end of history. So, in the futurist viewpoint, they see Revelation as uh, looking into the far distant future, which already, by the way, has been 2,000 years almost. Mm. The lesser known uh, version, perhaps, is the idealist view. The idealist doesn't see Revelation as dealing with actual historical events but it looks at Revelation as more or less a philosophy of history. If we take the individual elements in Revelation, such as the beast or, or whatever is in there, we're not to look for some particular individual in history or some particular historical movement, but what we're to see in the book of Revelation is basically a philosophy of history. The beast represents perhaps tyrannical government wherever it may arise. Mm. And so the idealist view is not uh, connected with history. It's a more supra-historical view of the book of Revelation. And then the other view has uh, uh, largely been rejected today, but was very popular, especially during the Reformation and up perhaps into the 1900s. And that's the view that says that Revelation is giving an outline to history. That is, it begins in the first century to the original churches to whom John wrote, and then it traces uh, basic historical patterns up until the end when Christ returns again. Hmm. And so this is called the historicist view. So the three alternative views to the preterist are futurist, idealist, and historicist. Okay. Now, in the modern debate, you don't find too many historicists anymore because the longer history goes, the more they have to revise their system because they've already made <laughs> declarations about this is the end and here's what's going to happen. And now my view is, and the view apparently you hold, is the preterist view. The word preterist comes from the Latin word preteritus, which means past or passed by. And uh, it emphasizes the fact that the book of Revelation is largely a past tense book. When John wrote it, it was in the future, but it was in the near-term future. Now we're interpreting it here uh, over 1,900 years later, and it's in our past, and therefore uh, the... Um, perspective I present is called the preterist or past tense view of the book of Revelation. Okay, that was great. That was really helpful. Um, 
Now, it's been my experience as a preterist that there are a number of challenges that, that we uniquely face, which sort of serve as stumbling blocks, uh, which I found prevent a lot of people from even giving our, fair, our view a fair, a fair hearing. Uh, and so I think it's important that we address at least some of these before actually getting into how, how it is that we interpret a couple of the images in Revelation we're going to be talking about today. And I'd like to begin with the challenge of overcoming the assumption many make that the book of Revelation intends to tell us a whole lot about what's going to happen in our future, which is, of course, you know, is an, an assumption reinforced by cultural, uh, cultural fascination with the apocalypse in, in movies and on TV and stuff. Uh, it's funny, Jaws practically drops sometimes when some people find out that some of us think that most of it was fulfilled in the past. So what evidence do we see in the book of Revelation that John has shown what was going to happen very soon thereafter, something that was going to happen in the first century rather than some 2,000 years in the future? Well, what we have to do when we approach the book of Revelation is set aside the Left Behind series and uh, late great planet Earth and those <laughs> types of books and pick it up as if we were receiving it in the first century, which it was when John wrote it and he wrote to seven historical churches that existed in his realm of experience. And we have to read it as they would read it, instead of reading it as how Lindsay would read it. And when we open the book, the, whenever I talk to somebody about the subject, uh, when you open the book, you will notice the first three verses of Revelation tell you very specifically that this is not dealing with distant events way off into the future. The first verse of Revelation, which serves basically as its title, since ancient books didn't have separate titles, uh, the first book of Revelation, I mean, the first verse of Revelation says, "The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants the things things which must soon take place." Mm. And then verse three reinforces that and says, "Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near." So right here, right when you open the scroll in the first century, you are already thinking, or must already think in terms of these events are soon to take place because the time is near. Nothing in these opening verses would in challenge the first century reader to suppose that he's writing about events 2,000 years in the future. Right. Now, not only is that the case, but in the closing of Revelation, we have John reiterating the fact that these events will occur very soon. In fact, these two verses are practically paralleled by what John says in his last chapter. For instance, in chapter 22, verse 6, the angel speaking, and John writes, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the, the things which must soon take place. And then just a few verses later, in verse 10, he says, that angel speaking again, uh, and he said to me, not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So what I challenge the modern evangelical Christian to realize is that when you open the book and when you close it, John says these things are near and soon to happen. We must give John full credence in what he declares his book is talking about. Yeah. Now, in the first century, again, they would not have supposed that he was writing 2,000-year future. <laughs> they, they would quite naturally open and close the book, being reminded that the book uh, deals with near-term events. Furthermore, what's so in 
significant about this is that John's writing to a persecuted church. This is not just a church sitting around looking for something to do in a Bible study with coffee on the weekend. <laughs> this is a church in that day uh, that is dealing with real, live, pressing, persecutorial events. For instance, in verse 9 of Revelation, just nine verses in, John says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. He says, I am your fellow partaker in mm -hmm. tribulation and persevering. So he's writing to a church that is under severe uh, repression by their local culture, and he's writing in such a way that he tells them, help is on the way, yeah. and very soon. And in verse uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, 11, we have this fascinating statement. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Now, recognize he's dealing with people who have lost loved ones, and he actually gets a heavenly vision where he sees those loved ones in heaven who have been slain. And they are slain, why? Because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. But what does he see they're doing in heaven? Verse 10 says, Revelation 6:10, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then verse 11 is the key here for what we're talking about. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer mm. until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So you have a book that opens and closes with near-term expectations. You have a book that's dealing with a persecuted church, and a persecuted church that is being told that uh, they're not to wait much longer for God's judgment to come against their enemies, but that they are to wait only a short while. I don't see how anyone can objectively read the book of Revelation and come away with the notion that John is talking about events 2,000 or 3,000 years distant in the future. Yeah, I agree. And of course, that was just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we could spend another hour talking about the near time frame indicators. But but of course, our view is not simply that the events foretold in Revelation were going to happen soon. Our view is that it's describing events in and surrounding the siege of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which, which I think presents us with yet another challenge, namely the dating of the book of Revelation. Uh, as you know, most scholars contend that Revelation was written some 25 years or so after Jerusalem fell. Uh, and critics of our view are quick to cite people like Irenaeus and, and some of the people who followed him, uh, who, they argue, held to this late date for the writing of Revelation. You discussed the dating question, dating question in Chapter 2 of Navigating the Book of Revelation, and of course your book, Before Jerusalem Fell, discusses it at great length. But briefly, how do you answer this challenge from these figures in church history, and what evidence would you point to that Revelation was written prior to the fall of Jerusalem? Well, generally, Irenaeus is the church father who's brought up in this discussion because Irenaeus lived quite early. He wrote about 175 A.D. John, in my view, wrote the book of Revelation around 65 A.D., so he's really writing within us almost a century of when John wrote it. But Irenaeus makes this statement in uh, his book, Against Heresies, where he's dealing with a particular, a particular concern of the uh, early Christians in his day about who the Antichrist is, and what 666 represents, and things of that sort. Apparently, Hal Lindsey was even, is even older than I thought he was, because he <laughs> was a concern back then. Well, Irenaeus makes a statement regarding the book of Revelation, and he says, it, he appears to say, John wrote Revelation almost in our day, 
before the end of Domitian's reign. Hmm. But the, and that would mean that John wrote around A.D. 95 or so, uh, which would be 25 years after the destruction of the temple. However, the grammar of uh, Irenaeus' statement is subject to an alternative interpretation. It might be that he's not saying Revelation was seen by John in Domitian's reign, but he might be, and I think he probably was, saying that John was seen uh, in the latter uh, reign of Domitian, because he's dealing with the question, what, who is the Antichrist, what is his name, what does 666 represent? And he, it appears that he's saying, well, if John wanted us to know, he would have told us he lived almost to our lifetime and could have reported that uh, to, to our uh, fathers right. in, the, in the Spirit. And so the first problem is, Irenaeus, who is the anchor for all later statements from church fathers regarding when John wrote, could be interpreted in a different way because his grammar is unclear. But also, uh, even if we take uh, Irenaeus at face value and say that, well, we think he's uh, talking about the book of Revelation being written in Revelation ninety-five, Irenaeus could have been wrong. Yeah. Um, John, uh, Irenaeus tells us that Jesus lived to be 50 years old and had a 15-year ministry. Hmm. No evangelical Christian, no reputable scholar today says that Jesus lived to be 50 and that he had a 15-year ministry. He lived to be you know, in his early 30s, and he um, had only a three and maybe a three-and-a-half-year ministry. So we see clearly that Irenaeus can make mistakes and actually does. And so all the other church fathers appear to be uh, citing Irenaeus in their declaration that John wrote during uh, the reign of Domitian. So uh, it all hinges on Irenaeus, and that's pointed out there are two initial problems there with Irenaeus. Of course, there are more, but we don't have time to delve into all the details. Sure. Now, the second part of your question was, um, what... What kind of evidence do we have? Uh, what would I pose in opposition to this, what is called late-date evidence, that John wrote around 95 when Domitian is the emperor? Well, I argue uh, in my works, and I'm not the only one who does, there are many scholars who do so, I argue that John wrote while Nero Caesar was on the throne, and that John wrote around A.D. 65 or so. Uh, the Neuronic persecution breaks out in 64, Christian Church, and John is writing in the midst of that sort of turmoil when he writes. And there, there's two, well, there are many reasons, but there are two reasons that we might have time for this morning to deal with this issue uh, regarding the date of Revelation. And one of those is that when John writes, it seems apparent that the temple is still standing. Mm. Not only is there a lot of temple imagery in the book of Revelation throughout, so that it's compared to the heavenly temple above. In Revelation 11:2, well, let me read verses 1 and 2. It says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now here he speaks as if the temple is still standing. If was writing in A.D. 95, there was no temple. Yeah. And he would be 25 years too late in that kind of measurement. Now, uh, also what's interesting about this is, not only does the temple appear to be there, 
but that he speaks of uh, he speaks in such a way that he's paralleling a statement by Christ in Luke 21, where in Luke 21 Jesus is talking about the very temple that's standing in the presence of his disciples when they come up and ask him about it. John speaks here in Revelation 11:2 uh, clearly reflects uh, Luke's language in Luke 21, and we know in Luke 21 that that same language about the trampling of the holy city for a period of time by the nations is also uh, is tied to the first century destruction of the temple because he specifically says so. They're looking at the temple. He's explaining what's going to happen to it. So if John in Revelation picks up the language of Christ from Luke 21, and the language of Christ in Luke 21 applies to the first century temple that was destroyed in AD 70, then it would appear to me logical to say that John's dealing with that same issue because he's using Jesus's prior prophecy regarding it. Sure. So my first line of evidence would be that the, the temple's still standing, and that, that's, a, that's a big deal in itself as a historical piece of information, but also it's a huge deal in terms of the transition from the old covenant economy to the new covenant. Right. The old covenant was dominated by ritualistic worship surrounding either a tabernacle or later the temple. And so now the time has come that the temple's to be removed and the worship of God to be uh, spiritually based rather than ritualistically based. Well, a second line of evidence we find in Revelation 17, because there it appears that John is informing us that uh, Nero is on the throne when he writes. Now let me read just a couple of verses here. Now an angel is interpreting a vision that John has just seen about a woman riding on a seven-headed beast. Mm. And here's, here's what the angel says. And the first words of the angel are, are like the angel's looking down right in the eye and says, listen carefully, and I'll explain to you what's going on. In other words, this is a piece of interpretation within the book of Revelation. It's not a further confusing vision. Mm. Well, in verse 9, the angel says to John, after he's wondering what in the world this woman riding the beast is all about, the angel says, here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and there are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other's not yet come. When he comes, he must remain a little while. Now, when he talks of seven heads representing seven mountains, this reminds us of the seven hills of Rome. Rome was known in antiquity, and is even known today, as the city on seven hills. Right. In the ancient writings of the uh, Latin uh, historians and biographers, those seven hills are called seven mountains. Now, we call them hills today, but they were known as seven mountains. So it seems that it's locating the uh, place of action here on this seven-hill city. But then he says the seven kings also represent, now here's the confusing part, it represents one thing geographically and another thing historically or politically, because he says they are seven kings, five fallen, one is, the other's not yet come. That appears to represent the first five Caesars of Rome having died, Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Gaius. They have died. They have fallen. One is that sixth one, the one that now is, according to John, is Nero Caesar, and Nero Caesar dies in June of 68. So the one that now is is Nero Caesar, so John must be writing before Nero died in 68, which is obviously before the year 70. But interestingly, he adds, the other, that is the seventh, has not yet come. When he comes, he must remain a little while. Nero reigned for 13 and a half years, 
and he died in the midst of a civil war in, in Rome that uh, claimed his life and almost destroyed the city and the empire, by the way. Um, but ne after Nero reigned for 13 years, the shortest reigning emperor to that time arose. His name was Galba Caesar. He reigned for only six months, from June uh, to January after Nero dies in 68. Hmm. And so, interestingly, we've got a settled location. We have of seven kings that are that are coming. Five have already fallen. One is, and one is yet to come. And the one that is to come shortly is the shortest reigning emperor to that time. So <laughs> it seems to me that that fits quite nicely and perfectly into the early date of Revelation, pre-70 dating of the Book of Revelation. So, in responding to the uh, question regarding the Church Fathers and their views. We've noted that Irenaeus uh, has a grammatical problem that confuses, confuses us, and he also uh, has some historical problems of his own. And then regarding the evidence I would use to date the Book of Revelation, two of those are the Temple still standing when John writes, and the sixth emperor is still on the throne. So there you go. That's, uh, that's a brief summary of my life's work in here five minutes. <laughs> yeah. I should have heard could have my life along a little bit if I could do it in minutes. <laughs> yeah, well, as was the case with the last question, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, and we could spend a long time talking about uh, that evidence. Uh, and we're going to come back to Nero in a second. But, but one last challenge that I want to discuss briefly is the association that many who are new to our view make between us preterists and a group of people calling themselves preterists, but who think all the biblical prophecy in the book of Revelation was fulfilled in the first century. Uh, you know, I often encounter this misapprehension that preterists believe Christ has already returned and that the resurrection was uh, a strictly spiritual one in our past and, and, and so on and so forth, all of which I personally would call downright heresy. But that means that on one hand, we're saying Revelation is primarily fulfilled in first century events, and yet, on the other hand, we're saying that the second advent of Christ is yet in our future, and that the bodily resurrection, which appears to be discussed within the pages of Revelation itself, is likewise something that we look forward to rather than backwards. So how is it that we can be consistent in saying that the soon, shortly, at-hand language points to a first century fulfillment, while at the same time saying that some of Revelation remains to be fulfilled? Well, that's a good question, and I agree with you that the alternative that you mentioned there is borders on heresy. And, um, in fact, they have been led into various heretical assumptions, uh, not only denying that Jesus is returning again, but denying a bodily resurrection and many other things that come with that movement, which is called the hyper-preterist movement. Mm. But, now, what are we to do with the book of Revelation? Does it speak of any events that lie off in our future? Well, as a matter of fact, I believe that it does briefly allude to the future in the, first, in the book of Revelation. Now, what I want to get the hearer to recognize is that the vast bulk of the book of Revelation deals with soon coming events in John's day. John is writing this book to deal with events that are to come upon the people to whom he writes while they're still alive and while he's still alive. And so the vast bulk of the book deals with first century events. Remember earlier we said that it's bracketed by near-term indicators in verses 1 and 3, and then in chapter 22, verses 6 and 10. Mm. So, book does deal largely, almost totally, with first century events. However, remember he is encouraging first century persecuted Christians, and the, uh, he's, he's telling them that judgment is coming against their enemies to hold on, 
to keep faithful, to fight the good fight, to persevere, not to give up. Well, in one place in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, he glances off to the future and telling them of all these judgments to come. In one place, he looks beyond the near-term events to show them that their future has bright hope. And he looks there long-term, what he calls the thousand years, which I believe is a symbolic time frame, but it's obviously a long-term time frame because a thousand years surely doesn't indicate something short. It <laughs> indicates something long. Right. So by definition, he's already breached his pattern of near-term events. He's breached that by saying, now let's consider the long-term of your commitment and what God's going to do with his church. And so we have the thousand-year reign of Christ, which represents ultimately the, the reign of Jesus over the world until the end. And so it's for that purpose, to give a glance to the future so that they might, might know that their labor is not in vain in the Lord. And John specifically declares that these events are going to overpass the near-term indicators that govern the book as a whole, because it's a thousand years. But interestingly, uh, let's, uh, let's take the futurists. The futurists, especially the dispensationalists, such as uh, Lindsay LaHaye and those folks, um, they will tell us, well, you know, we reject this whole notion that the book of Revelation deals with first century events. Uh, it is to be interpreted in a futuristic sense. Hmm. Well, interestingly, even the futurists, such as Robert L. Thomas in his two-volume commentary, John Walbert in his one-volume commentary on the book of Revelation, even they admit that some of the book of Revelation deals with past events, even though they say that the bulk of the book is future. For hmm. instance, in Revelation 12, there seems to be a very clear picture of Christ's birth and then his ascension into heaven, which obviously occur before John writes, um, uh, you know, several decades before John writes. And so what I'm saying by that is this. The futurists say the book of Revelation is to be interpreted futuristically, but they allow that some parts are interpreted from the past. Now, I, as an orthodox preterist, say that the book is to be interpreted primarily in terms of past events, but there is the place where John looks off into the future and says, lo and behold, there are good things coming. Mm. So even though I believe the book is primarily dealing with first century events, it does look at, at one place into the future to show what is to come. Yeah, and what I think is interesting about that difference that you just mentioned is that at least we have a thousand-year period of time we can point to as that transition, whereas I don't see that uh, in the futurist view. I don't see them as having anything they can point to to, to say, here's what, here's, here's what happened in the past and, and here's what's going to happen in the distant future. So I think that that actually fits our view real nicely. Well, let's go ahead and move on, having hopefully removed some of these obstacles. Obviously, there are others, but we're limited in time. Um, and in the little time that remains, let's talk about one or two of the most notable figures in the revelation given to John, depending upon how much time we have. Uh, I've chosen these because I think properly identifying them can really begin to unseal the meaning and message of the whole book. And I'd like to begin with what you discuss in chapter 8 of Navigating the Book of Revelation, since it addresses what may arguably the most famous and fascinating figure within the whole book of Revelation, and that's the beast. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it's obvious to my listeners that Revelation 13 is not to be understood as predicting the coming of some literal huge beast with seven heads and ten horns, but if that's not the case, what does this beast symbolize in a first century time frame, and, and how do we know? I believe that the beast there actually has a twofold reference, and even dispensationalists such as uh, Robert L. Thomas and John Walbert and Charles Ryrie 
would agree with me and other predators that this seven headed has a twofold reference. Sometimes it refers to the king of kingdom, sometimes it refers to the whole kingdom itself. What I would argue is that the beast of Revelation refers to the Roman Empire, and sometimes the beast represents the head of the Roman Empire at that particular time. Mm. And so we have to recognize, because remember the beast, as I noted earlier, has seven heads, which represent seven hills, or seven mountains, and also represents seven kings. So the, the beast imagery has a twofold reference. Uh, and therefore, I think that given that he's writing in the first century to people who well knew what Rome was and that it was a city on seven hills, I think clearly they're, they're reading this. They're reading a book that's telling them at the opening and conclusion these things are shortly to take place. As they read it, they read about a, a city on seven hills or seven mountains. What in the world would they think about other than Rome? And so it seems clear that it's dealing with Roman... Uh, the Roman Empire, and that sometimes the actions taken are the actions of an individual Roman emperor, so they're there to assume he's talking about the emperor. So I believe clearly that the book is dealing with Rome and its particular head at the time, the sixth king that now is Nero Caesar. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that then ruling king. Um, you know, in today's modern culture, we're fascinated by the, the mark of the beast and, and 666. Uh, but but how does this number, which as you and I know is, is 666, not the digits 666 in repetition, how does 666 support what you've suggested is the uh, identity of this this head of the beast? It becomes actually a very helpful piece of information that uh, strongly moves us in the direction of recognizing that it's referring to Nero Caesar. And before I give you the answer there, I'll give you a little little bit of background information. In the first place, we in modern culture have Arabic numbering system. We have an Arabic numbering system that we use. We all recognize as distinct from our alphabet a separate numbering system. That was created about the ninth century. It's actually a Hindu-Arabic numbering system. Well, in the first century, when John wrote, people uh, numbered things by letters instead of an actual separate numbering system. For mm. instance, Roman numerals. We all recognize that as I and C and V and X. Well, in Hebrew, uh, John, remember, John was a Hebrew. He's writing a book that's very Hebraic that mentions the temple and a lot of Hebrew words and names and such. And he's focusing on strongly Jewish issues. So John, as a Hebrew, uh, is going to be using uh, a Hebrew spelling of the name Nero Caesar. Now, in Hebrew, the numbering system was the alphabet. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, A, B, uh, well, G, D, a residence one, two, three, four. Then when you get up to the tenth letter, it starts speaking in tens, in twenty, thirty, and then you combine those in certain ways to make hundreds and whatever. Well, interestingly, scholars have noted uh, that the name Nero Caesar, when spelled in Hebrew characters, comes up exactly to the number six hundred and sixty-six. Mm. So, recognizing that the first century used. Um, the alphabet for the numbering system, recognizing that John was a Hebrew writing a very Hebraic book, uh, we look around for something associated with a seven-killed city with the sixth king then living. We come up to Nero Caesar, we look at his name, spelled in Hebrew characters, and lo and behold, it spells out 666. Now, interestingly in that regard, 
um, there was a game in antiquity called Gematria, uh, which you might recognize geometrics from that. But Gematria was where, for instance, on the walls of uh, was destroyed with the, the uh, earthquake and volcanic eruption. There's a Gematria found that says, well, I, I won't give you the exact thing because I don't remember it exactly, but <laughs> it basically, as I love her, whose number is 515, I think it was. And uh, so, who's number 515? Well, the girl would know because she knows what her name is, but everybody else would be left somewhat in a mystery. But yeah. this was a game and, and a fascination that the people had with numbers. And, and that's what John is doing, engaging basically in gematria. Yeah, now that's really good. Well, I mentioned that I wanted to take a look at uh, two of the most notable figures in Revelation. I'm going to skip a couple of questions I prepared so we can get one more of these figures in. Um, so, so let's move from one city represented by a beast to a second city represented by a harlot. Uh, the great harlot, in fact, so-called Mystery Babylon, introduced in detail in Revelation 17. Theories to her identity abound. I've even heard it often said that <laughs> that she's modern-day America, uh, if you'll believe it. You, you discuss the harlot in chapters 11 and 12 of Navigating the Book of Revelation. What do you think is the great city represented by this harlot, and what's the nature of her relationship with the beast we just finished talking about? Well, my view is going to be very much different from uh, the modern evangelical thinking. I believe when John refers to the great city called the Mystery Babylon, he is referring to Jerusalem of the first century. Mm. And he's looking at Jerusalem as the city where Jesus was rejected, where he was crucified, where the Jews cried out, His blood be upon us and our children. We have no king. These are crucified. He's looking at that great city being not what it should be, the great city where God's name is declared and God's will is promoted, but looking at what Jerusalem has become, the enemy of God and the slayer of the Son of God. In Revelation 11:8, we find the first reference to the great city in the book, which I believe sets the pattern for the later references to the great city. In 11:8, talking about the two prophets who are slain, their bodies lying in the street, it says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. There's that phraseology, which we see later in the great city Babylon. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Mm. So what he's saying here is mystically or spiritually, this city is known as a Sodom, as an Egypt, an oppressor of God's people, immoral. But it's the place historically where their Lord was crucified. And everybody knows Jesus was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. So we have here the first reference to the great city as a, a place where Jesus was crucified, which was Jerusalem. Also, when we get to Revelation 17:5, which you're in the text now in Revelation 17, that deals with this great city, uh, there we find the priest, uh, I'm sorry, there we find the harlot dressed in particular colors. And it says in Revelation 17, 4, the woman who sat on the beast, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, Babylon the Great, Mother of Harlots, Abominations of the Earth. What I believe this represents is the high priesthood in the first century while the temple was still standing. Mm. If you look in Acts 25, you'll find those colors, purple and scarlet, and uh, the gold, precious stones on the Urim and Thummim on the high priest. And uh, you'll also find that the priest, high priest has on his head 
a, a name written that says, supposed to say, and in the Old Testament did say, holy to the Lord. Mm. Well, now John is recasting that high priesthood, which rejected, rejected Jesus Christ and had him put to death, and he's showing them in their high priestly garb, but now the name on her forehead is Babylon the Great, Mother of Harlots, Abomination to the Earth, instead of Holy unto the Lord. Now, in when you compare Revelation 17, we don't have time to flash, but if you read Revelation 17 and then Revelation 21, you're going to find a parallel between the way John deals with the Babylonian harlot, uh, how he's carried to her by the Spirit, and he sees her in a wilderness and all of this, by one of the seven angels. Well, in Revelation 21, he's carried to this new Jerusalem, the holy city of God, by this one of these seven angels, and he sees her coming out of heaven, and he sees her on a mountain. What we're getting there is a negative and positive image of the same thing. The negative is, historical Jerusalem has become a great harlot who's rejected uh, the wife of God, and the son of God, and, and chose Caesar over Christ. Mm. Therefore, she's presented as a harlot. But the angel comes and takes him off to see a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem coming out of heaven, which represents mm. the Church of Jesus Christ. So, if the new Jerusalem takes the place of the old harlot, the new Jerusalem is taking the place, it seems to me, of the old Jerusalem. And that Jesus says to the woman at the, at the well, is effectively, when he says, your fathers worshipped in this mountain, we worshipped in that mountain, but I'm telling you there's a time coming when anywhere men may call upon the Lord and worship him. What he's doing is denigrating Jerusalem as the place of worship. But in Galatians 4, Paul uses uh, an allegory there to speak of the Jerusalem that now is and the Jerusalem above, which is what John is doing in Revelation. And Hebrews does the same thing in Hebrews 12 when he talks about the Jerusalem below and the Jerusalem above. Yeah. John is picking up on imagery that's already found in Scripture, and what he's doing is painting a picture of Israel as the great harlot, which, by the way, the prophets did in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 3, 16, Isaiah 50, and other places. Uh, Old Testament Jerusalem is called the harlot. That's what John is calling her in uh, the New Covenant book of Revelation. Yeah, I think it's it's very clear, and you know, I, I wish we had several more hours to discuss this. I'm sure that we could we could do it if we had the time, but we don't. So, uh, so let's wrap up so I can let you go. What are some books that you've written on the topic that you'd recommend my listeners check out to learn more? And and where is it that they can go to get their hands on them? Well, I appreciate that invitation to inform the people. So I have several books written on Revelation. They can be found at my website, kennethgentry.com. And uh, the one that they might want to start with is called The Book of Revelation Made Easy. And the reason they might want to start there is about the fact the Book of Revelation Easy, <laughs> which uh, is a very difficult book, very obviously, but I deal with some of the key principles for interpreting the book. And once they've completed that, they might want to go on to the book, um, Navigating the Book of Revelation, which you mentioned earlier. It's a more technical book, but it's still not a long book, uh, I think maybe under 200 pages. And um, it deals with some of these key issues that we've been talking about on the radio program today. And then uh, they might also want to check out four views on the book of Revelation. It's one of the Zondervan counterpoint books where you have the four views presented uh, against each other. And I'd like to chapter on uh, the Preterist view. Those ought to get folks started. And toward the end of the year, they can, uh, Lord willing, start looking for my big commentary on the, the Revelation. 
<laughs> That's absolutely right. All right, well, thanks a lot, Kenneth. I'll let you get back to your day. Uh, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay, I appreciate it. We'll talk to you later. All right. All right, that was my interview with Kenneth Gentry. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please pray for me for my upcoming appearance on Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. And stay tuned for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast on Eastern Orthodoxy and Infant Baptism. Until then...